Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we learned about apartheid-era South Africa, heard about authoritarian governments on the rise, and listened to brand new music from one of Chicago's most vital acts. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for September 18, 2020. I-94 chatted with Ivan Vladislavich, author of The Distance. Vladislavich discussed the enduring appeal of Muhammad Ali, the use of language by authoritarian regimes, and the reclamation of Afrikaans. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Uh, I want to start, this is a, a novel about... Uh Two brothers, one of whom uh, becomes quite obsessed with uh, the fighter known as Cassius Clay, who then, of course, famously changes his name to Muhammad Ali and becomes one of the greatest figures not only in the sport of boxing, but in sports and arguably, uh, here in America anyway, uh, one of the most popular figures for social justice that we've ever seen. Uh, I wanted to start here and talk a little bit about the sport of boxing itself. I think it's very interesting you chose uh, to base your book around this, not only because there are so many other wonderful pieces of literature uh, about the sport of boxing, but because this is set in apartheid-era South Africa, and that is kind of an um, undercurrent through the book. You know, you don't really necessarily make it explicit, but, I mean, a careful reader is obviously going to know what's going on in 1980. Can you talk a little bit about your decision to use Muhammad Ali uh, really as a character in this book and, and what you were trying to get across? Uh, well, to start with, I think the I was I was attracted to the story because, uh, like one of the characters in the, the novel, I had a a boyhood obsession with Ali, and I had a collection of uh, of scrapbooks of news cuttings. Um, so that that element of the book is quite closely based on my own experience. And for many years, I was I was I was fa fascinated by that material and always kind of wanting to do something with it. Um, and then I, I guess Ali as a figure is just such a such a fascinating uh, person. Apart from apart from being such an enormously important uh, sporting figure, um, as you said, he's also enormously important as a cultural figure, um, and, and 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 an immensely important political icon. And I think that it's that combination that attracted me to to the story, with a bit of trepidation, I should say, because it is such a big story and he is so incredibly well known. And so the the um, challenge for me, I think, was to try and deal with that that massive story on a small, uh, more intimate level within the you know within the confines of a of a family story. Well, that that's part of the book itself, which which I liked that that struggle to decide as the writer what the story is itself about. Is it about Ali? Is it about boxing? Is it about brotherhood? Is it about memory? Is it about uh, it's about you can read it on a lot of levels, is what I'm saying, which I which I really enjoyed. And um, the character you're talking about, who who resembles you in your boyhood, Joe, um, who has a fascination with Ali. It's said that he's not really a boxing fan per se. He's more just obsessed with Ali, and so you know picks up bits and bobs of of boxing on the way. Were you were you a boxing fan before you you wrote this book? Um. I was I was something of a fan, but I, I must say it was actually more of an more of an attraction to Ali than to boxing itself. I think I was like like many people in that era, um, drawn to the sport because of of the, the 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 appeal of the of the character. So he sort of ex explodes out of the sporting arena into the cultural arena, and he's and he's he's newsworthy in a way that very few sports people were newsworthy at that time. Well, you know, yeah. he's on the front pages of the paper and so on. And so, um, so I'd watched a bit of boxing. My father was a very big boxing fan, and so I'd watched a bit of boxing. But really, it started as I would say an an, an obsession with Ali rather than with boxing itself. But the other thing that was happening, um, for Joe in the book anyway, is that there's there's conflict be between him and his elder brother and his father and, and what seems like a lot of white male authority figures in Pretoria, which is just outside of Johannesburg. Um, they refuse to call Ali Ali. They, they'll, they'll only call him by Clay, 
Cassius Clay. And that was a common, by the way, that was oh, a common thing both here in America yeah, as well, in, yeah. in the South and in the West. And uh, that seemed like maybe it was part of the appeal for Joe. Was, was Did you have that experience? Uh, absolutely. Um, it roused my father terribly that, that I was such a big fan. And um, so, so, and you know, he, he was an incredibly provocative figure for con- conservative, racist, um, white South Africans. You can imagine how provocative he, he was. Um, the the political positions he took, his and everything about him, his confidence, you know, his smartness, everything about him was a was a provocation. And so that, that was definitely part of the part of the appeal to me as a teenager. And I tried to build that into the book. I think it's kind of a felt to me like a rich a rich vein to explore in fiction. Yeah. Can we can we back up a little bit for people that may not be familiar with apartheid era South Africa? Can you talk a little bit about um, what South Africa was like before um, the ANC and, and Nelson Mandela? Because as as you note, Ali would have been a very provocative figure there as he was here. Um, and, you know, I'm of the age, I remember the wildcat tours of South Africa by the English cricketing team. I, I grew up in Britain. So, um, and of course, you know, South Africa and, and England have very close ties. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because sports was, was such an important thing in your country. And it was used by the ruling um, apartheid government to also gain legitimacy. So I, I think that somebody like Ali would have been a tremendous challenge uh, to that system, as well as, in, in a weird way, somebody they would have liked to have exploited if they could. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the, the period when, that the, the book is set in, which is mainly the sort of 60s and 70s. Um, that's the real, the real kind of dark days of apartheid. It's the, it's the, it's the heart of the era. And the, Nas- the Nationalist Party, which is the apartheid um, party, comes to power in 1948, and more or less smashes the opposition in in the late 50s and early 60s through a, a whole series of of um, laws and also through direct action against people. So that's the era of the Ravonia trial, for instance, in which Mandela and all, and all the other leaders of the ANC are jailed. So the, the 60s is a very is is a period in which the opposition to apartheid is very suppressed, um, and that extends into the into the early 70s. And the political system only really begins to to get shaken in '76 or so with the Soweto student uprising. So, and so that period that 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 I write about it coincides pretty much exactly with my time at school. So I'm at at, at school in a kind of Christian national um, government school in that very oppressive period, which is which is. I think also goes some way towards explaining the appeal of a figure like like Ali. Could you tell our listeners briefly said. about the Soweto uprising for those who might not be familiar? So that that was uh, began as a as a protest by um, school uh, students in Soweto against the um, attempt by the government to impose Afrikaans as a medium as a medium of instruction in the schools. So it, it it started as a as a series of protests and marches, which were very violently put down by the government, and and many hundreds of people were killed. Um, but it, it also signaled the beginning of of uh, a different kind of revolt in South Africa, which never really goes away again after that. So after after that after that those kind of cataclysmic events, you have. Um, thousands of young young black people, especially, leaving the country for military training and so on, and then the 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 resistance to apartheid spills on you know through the late seventies and eighties until until the the settlement in in the late nineteen eighties. And Africa. And I was going. I was going to say, so yeah. Jamie. I was going to say in answer to what you said earlier that it was the government was quite keen for for Ali to come to South Africa. And there were there were many uh, invitations to him and attempts to get him here, um, because it would have been a real coup for them to, to have him appear here, as it was to get to get entertainers and sports people to come here. As you say, it was quite important to them for their legitimacy to have people come here as if this was a normal society. Yeah, it seems but like they might have. If it wasn't for certain advocate groups, you know, like I, there's mention in the book about Joe Frazier being 
invited to South Africa, and he seemed compelled to go until he was urged to, to keep the boycott. Um, yeah, and we should mention there was an international sporting boycott of South Africa. And when I re- referenced earlier the so-called Wildcat Tours, uh, cricket tours were, were organized in England and, and sent you know test match cricketers over to South Africa. Uh, and, and those were um, widely denounced on the international scale because there, at, at the period you're writing about, there was also a tremendous amount of international pressure uh, against South Africa and its apartheid government, which is widely seen as uh, immoral um, and, and, you know, illegitimate, I would say as well. Um, but back to something you, you said earlier, uh, could you tell our leader, our, our listeners, excuse me, um, about Afrikaans, because that is something that Americans probably are not super familiar with. Most of us think of South Africa as a place that speaks English, and, you know, I, I don't know if they're familiar with that. That's a... Uh, um Afrikaans is a language spoken by Afrikaners. Uh, it's people of mainly sort of Dutch and German descent uh, in, in South Africa. It's a language with a very kind of complex and also contested history. Um, it was regarded in the apartheid years as a kind of offshoot or the latest development of the Germanic languages. But um, since, since, since then, it's been... Uh, subjected to closer scrutiny by many linguists and, and historians. And in fact, it's a language that that develops um, in a more kind of creolized way um, with with largely in the mouths of slaves and and with a huge input from black speakers. So the language itself has sort of been, re- been uh, re- rehabilitated, recovered. I don't know what's, what the correct word is for it. Um, from being regarded as a language of the oppressor, which was very much the case in the 1960s and 70s, um, to being regarded as a language that actually belongs to many South Africans and is in fact spoken more widely by black South Africans than white South Africans. Chuck Mertz chatted with historian Annaline Dedine on modern conceptions of freedom, the state, and democracy. Democracy is under pressure as never before in the modern era. Dedine breaks down why democratic rule is slipping and how tenuous the very concept of freedom really is. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10. The far right understands freedom as the ability to not have any government in our lives whatsoever. Here in the States, the right has interpreted U.S. history to reinforce their belief that any government is the enemy of freedom. Problem is, the founding fathers they claim to emulate did not understand freedom as being free from government. Instead, the framers viewed freedom as being free to govern themselves democratically, which is a lot different, nearly the opposite of what the so-called patriots are screaming about freedom from face masks to everything else. Here to explain political historian Annaline Dijin is author of 
Freedom and Unruly History. Annaline is professor of modern political history at Utrecht University, where she teaches political and intellectual history. You can find out more about Annaline at annalinedegin.yolasite.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at D-E underscore D-I-J-N. Welcome to This Is Hell, Annaline. Hi, great to be here. This is a fascinating topic, a really interesting take on what is meant by freedom. And I'm so glad that we're talking to you about this because a couple weeks ago, we spoke with author, photographer, anthropologist, former uh, explorer in residence at the National Geographic Society, Wade Davis. And Wade argues that here in the U.S., he lives in Canada, was born in the United States and lives in Canada now. He says that here in the U.S., we have lost our sense of what freedom is. He writes that in the U.S., those who flock to beaches, bars, and political rallies, putting their fellow citizens at risk, are not exercising freedom. They are displaying the weakness of a people who lack both the stoicism to endure the pandemic and the fortitude to defeat it, not exercising any sense of freedom. What does it reveal to you about how freedom is understood when it is seen as the ability to not wear a face mask or practice any safety protocols during a global pandemic? Well, I think what's behind that particular um, complaint that face masks, for instance, are an infringement of our liberty is a very peculiar uh, conception of liberty. And that conception of liberty uh, is that any kind of state intervention will automatically um, harm uh, your liberty. And what I try to show in my book is that that peculiar conception of freedom, freedom as the absence of state intervention, is actually far more uh, recent than you think at first sight. So that's one claim. And the second claim is also that it was invented by uh, a very different set of people from the ones that we usually attribute this view to. And Wade also writes that in the U.S., personal freedom came at the expense of common purpose. Is freedom something experienced individually or collectively? Are individual and collective freedom in competition with one another? Well, what I, what I try to show in my book is that there's a long history to uh, current conceptions of freedom. Um, and I, I sketch or I reconstruct something um, that we usually describe as the Western tradition of thinking about freedom. Uh, and in a way, you could argue that that tradition uh, starts uh, with the ancient Greeks. Uh, and what I try to show in my book is that um, originally, when we talked about freedom in the West, what we meant by that was the ability to self-govern. Um, so what I try to show in my book is that freedom originally was a near synonym for democracy. Um, and that changes um, fairly late in the day. So that only starts to change in the course of the 19th century. It's only in the course of the 19th century that we start thinking about freedom, not as this collective ability to govern ourselves, uh, but as being left alone by the state, as being able to do what we want without any kind of um, state interference. Now, when, you, uh, when, when we reflect on how that change happens, so this change from a, a collective conception of freedom to this more individualistic conception of freedom, there's sort of a, a set of uh, standard narratives to explain how that shift happens. Uh, and one of those narratives is that this more recent individualistic conception of freedom uh, is a result of, of uh, long-term changes, cultural changes, such for instance, the uh, Reformation. Uh, so one fairly common argument is that uh, when the Reformation happened, um, uh, uh, people became to prize uh, things like um, freedom of conscience, and that, that led to this uh, a different way of thinking about freedom, this more sort of inner individualistic uh, way of thinking about freedom. But what I try to show in my book is that those sort of those common narratives about the history of freedom are in fact wrong, um, and that that more recent that more modern individualistic conception of freedom was in fact an invention uh, of conservative uh, counter-revolutionary uh, thinkers who objected to the uh, increasing success of de dem democratizing movements um, in both Europe and the United States. Can we have a free society without being free from government? That's the argument that the right make makes, that we don't need a government to be a free society. In fact, that a government makes it so we are not a free society. Can we have a free society without being free from government? 
Well, so uh, what I try to show in my book is that um, uh, that for centuries, um, that was not an argument that people um, accepted. For centuries, when people thought about being free, it didn't mean not having a government. What it meant was having control over the way in which you were governed. So laws weren't necessarily seen as an infringement of our liberty. Uh, what was important was the question, who is making those laws? And as long uh, as, you know, it could be plausibly argued um, that, the, you know, that the laws we were subjected to were, were collectively made, that they were made, that they were subjected to democratic control, then um, you were able to say that you were living a free life. Uh, so this argument that um, government in and of itself uh, uh, is a, a threat to liberty and that it, it doesn't matter who's governing, but that what matters is the extent to which you are governed. That's actually a fairly a recent invention and I would also say uh, a, a, a right-wing invention. So uh, one, of the, um, one of the ways of describing what I try to do in my book is to describe, is to explain how freedom from an emancipatory concept, a concept that was most commonly invoked to argue for the extension of democratic control over government, how that was transformed into a conservative argument uh, to argue for a minimal government um, uh, and to argue that uh, any kind of government interference, even um, um, uh, you know, laws made with, with democratic consent, should be seen as an infringement of our liberty. And the reason why that, um, that individualistic conception of liberty was so attractive um, to these conservatives was that it allowed them to weaponize the concept of freedom um, against democracy. Because if you're saying that um, any kind of um, any kind of um, uh, law, any kind of sort of governmental interference and infringement of our liberty, even when it's um, when it when it has you know considerable uh, democratic legitimacy, then it allows you to um, to use this you know to say that um, specific types of state intervention that those are um, you know they're harming you they're infringing your individual liberty like you see for instance in the current discussions about face masks and the like. You were just mentioning that this is a right-wing concept, but also in your book, you point out that this idea of individual freedom has been embraced by liberals as well, by people here in the United States on both sides of the aisle, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. How did liberals come about to the point of accepting this idea of individual freedom? Because that would seem to go against their more uh, collective sense of freedom pre-1945 with, for instance, the administration of uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Exactly, that's a great question. So, um, my book, uh, in essence, tells two stories about freedom. One story is how uh, conservatives invented this uh, individualistic, what I call modern conception of liberty, and how they weaponize it against democracy. But what I also try to show in my book is that, um, at least initially, in the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries, the concept of freedom also continued to be invoked by uh, different uh, groups on the other side of the political spectrum. So progressives, populists, socialists continue to enthusiastically invoke the idea of freedom um, by which they meant something very different from these conservatives. They, they continue to place themselves in that more democratic revolutionary tradition uh, by arguing that you know real freedom wasn't just being left alone by the state, but that it implied uh, establishing control both over political decision-making, but also um, uh, over economic uh, decision-making and, and over our economic lives. So then uh, another question my book tries to answer is how did or and why um, did people on the left stop using that concept of freedom um, in this more democratic sense? Uh, and I think in order to answer that question, we need to look at the, the, the context of the Cold War. So. What I try to show is that after uh, 1945, um, even um, people that we usually describe of as, as liberal thinkers, so more progressive thinkers, thinkers that embrace state intervention and that um, can see that uh, state intervention can be important to procure economic security for ordinary people, that they start arguing, um, that they start buying into this um, uh, more individualistic, conservative conception of liberty. Um, and um, that's how we end up with the situation that we are now at, uh, where freedom has become, um, in a way, 
uh, an ideal that is embraced mostly by conservatives uh, and um, uh, far far less so by people um, on the liberal end of the political spectrum. <laughs> Yeah, 32nd is just brutal. How can they leave the street like this in front of a school? The city debt works. I'm pretty sure half the street has fallen into the Coporo's basement at this point. Mother I just bought that tire. Wow, that hole's huge. What the hell was that? Katie ran over a pothole. It's fine. Are you sure? I'd probably shoot that car and put it out of his misery. Right. No, it's not a Yugo. Hey. Do you guys hear that? Uh, it sounds like it's coming from under your tire. Did you guys hit someone? Quick, we better torch the car now before We're the cops We're not burning get here. anything. Jesus. Help me push the car back. Uh, Kyle? Uh, why is he wearing yeah. a uniform? Why is someone under the street in the first uh, place? How is that even possible? Oh, hey, guys. Oh, those fallen street racks really hurt my shemp area. Oh. Uh, Jess, what uh, are you guys doing down there? Uh, Kyle's showing me around the underside. There's tunnels running all through Bridgeport. Come on down. Uh, I'm not so good with confined spaces. Ah, yes, your deadly fun allergy. Come on, guys, leave old man Trekker up there. The door's right in the back of the Copro. Whoa, it's huge down here and super creepy. I don't get it. How is there all this room underneath the streets? Say, Jess, why don't you give them a history lesson? Okay, so all the streets in Bridgeport were raised in the 1850s by 14 feet due to flooding. That left all these tunnels. They go all the way up to Uptown. Yeah, that El Cazon guy used to use them for the bubbles right under the cops' noses. But Kyle, why are you wearing a uniform? Well, Professor Shannington, I'm a dutifully monetized and bonded member of Tristero, the Undertown Postal Society. And these tunnels is how we deliver the messages from the world beyond. You're an underground mailman? You're the least reliable person I know. I am deeply recognizated in that remark, Shannon. I've been delivering the undertown mail since the 1950s, I'll have you know. While that almost certainly can't be true, Shanna, the most important information is that there's a dead letter office down here. Unclaimed goods. Okay. Brought my knife, ready for inspection. Hey, I can't stand around here all day jibber-jabbering. The man leads delivering. So if you guys want to come along, I only got about a dozen more stops. Whoa, that's a pretty sweet mail cart you have there. Yeah, we put a lot of tires from Bridgeport on these old rail carts. Now, you got to stick close, because it ain't all fun and games down here. What's uh, with the musical cues, Kyle? That's the signal to level up, Jess. You're all gonna need infinite hit points for this job. Please turn off the boombox. Ah, you are not as fun as you claim. All right, kids, we gotta stop by Cheddar's house. He's the guy who gets that giant stack of magazines right there. Gigantic asses? Beautiful burrows? <whistles> Look at the hooves on Donkey Miss April. Yeah, he handles all the beasts of burden. You need him down here. Right, there you go. And the next stop is the gas plant, where we turn all your waste into the beautiful clean fuel that powers Undertown. Gross. It smells like a sewer. It is a sewer. Waste snot wants snot. That's what we say. Oh, what's the spur coming up? Just grab the lever. What lever? The one on your left. The other left. Oh, no, this is terrible. We're still on the rails. It can't be that bad. No, you don't understand. We're headed into Underports Bridge. Kyle, you just lost boombox privileges for a week. Submit. 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 Is that a squid on the back of their head? Quick, Jess. Grab me my whacking shovel. They've been taken over by the flying cavalon. That's a frying pan, you idiot. Whack them good, Jess. No mercy. There's an ink sack? It's everywhere? Get it in your mouth. Thanks will burrow through your stomach. I'm whacking. I'm whacking. They just keep coming. You will bow before Cyoctorax, liege of the vile We're going over the falls in the Palmasano. Hang on, guys. Oh my god, that's cold! Where the heck are we? And why do I want sushi? Oh, thank heavens you made it. Physically, perhaps. I, I think I lost three or four sanity points. That's nothing but the life of an undertown mailman, Jess. What do you say we get this cart back up on the rails and I'll give you rides back to the Copro? No! Oh, okay, but you don't have to be rude about it.
This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump denies climate change as our Pacific burns. Trump claims violent insurrection is coming if he loses. Allies claim Democrats are stealing the election. Trump's appointees claim the CDC is seditious. The post office delayed mail in battleground states. And Trump says, quote, we did a great job on COVID as 200,000 are dead. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1331, September 11th. Trump claimed the U.S. is, quote, rounding the corner on the pandemic and claimed next year will be the greatest economic year in the history of our country, I project. In fact, the United States is struggling with an 8.4 unemployment rate, and about half the jobs lost during the pandemic are not going to return. Dr. Anthony Fauci called the current COVID data disturbing and said the United States may not return to pre-coronavirus life until the end of 2021. The U.S. is still seeing some 40,000 new cases a day and 1,000 fatalities a day. Scientists fear the fall will bring a huge second wave of infections along with the seasonal flu. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans failed to pass the so-called skinny stimulus bill largely along party lines. It is now unclear if Congress will enact another economic recovery measure before November's elections. A federal court rejected Trump's order to exclude unauthorized emigrants from the census out of hand, saying it was so obviously illegal that a lawsuit challenging the order need not go to trial. Immigrants now must be included in population counts that will be used next year to reallocate seats in the House of Representatives. Russian military intelligence is now engaged in repeated hacks of Democratic officials per Microsoft, who have released a report far more detailed than any yet made public by American intelligence agencies. That alert came one day after a whistleblower claimed that officials at the White House and Department of Homeland Security are suppressing intelligence concerning Russia's continuing interference because, quote, it made the president look bad. Microsoft found that China and Iran have been active, but they are also targeting Joe Biden's campaign staff. The U.S. Treasury sanctioned a member of the Ukrainian parliament for efforts to interfere in the presidential election, accusing him of being an active Russian agent. Andrei Durkach, who met with Trump's lawyer Rudy Giuliani in December, promotes false and unsubstantiated allegations about Joe Biden from at least late 2019 through mid-2020. And Trump called a reporter a disgrace after the correspondent asked why the president lied to Americans about COVID-19. ABC's John Carl asked, quote, why did you lie to the American people and why should we trust what you have to say now? Trump replied, that's a terrible question and the phraseology, I didn't lie. What I said is we have to be calm, we can't be panicked. I can't instill panic by jumping up and down and start shouting that we have a problem that is a tremendous problem. As one Trump aide noted, quote, you don't yell fire in a crowded theater unless of course the theater is actually on fire. Day 1332, September 12th. Trump held six indoor rallies after he admitted to journalist Bob Woodward on February 7th he knew the coronavirus goes through the air and is more deadly than even your strenuous flus. A rally in Michigan saw 5,000 attend without face masks where Trump claimed falsely that five new companies are coming to Michigan. The director of the National Institute of Health said he was pretty puzzled and rather disheartened by that crowded campaign rally. NBC reports that Trump is considering holding a political event on White House grounds near Election Day. Trump was criticized for using the venue as a prop during the RNC, but he was so happy with how things went that he wants to do it again. The steady strip of damaging information from Bob Woodward's book continued with Trump bragging that he protected Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman from Congress after MBS ordered the assassination of the American journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, but Iran is killing 36 people a day, so I saved his ass. I was able to get Congress to leave him alone. I was able to get them to stop. Also, Trump quietly withheld nearly $4 million for a program that tracks and treats FDNY firefighters and medics suffering from 9-11 related illnesses. Those payments were authorized by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, but the Treasury Department started withholding parts of payments about four years ago. That move appears to be retaliatory to New York City. The leaders of four congressional committees accused a top Trump administration health official of extensive abuse of millions in taxpayer dollars to boost her personal brand. Seema Verma has been ordered to, quote, personally reimburse the taxpayers for these inappropriate expenditures after she spent more than $3.5 million on a range of Republican-connected consultants who polished her public profile, wrote her speeches, Twitter posts, brokered meetings with high-profile individuals, and then billed taxpayers for connecting Verma with fellow Republicans in Congress. Day 1333, September 13th. 
Trump claimed that Joe Biden took drugs to get him through debates. Quote, I think there's possibly, possibly drugs involved, Trump told Fox News' Gene Perro. That's what I hear. I mean, there's possibly drugs. I don't know how you can go from being so bad where you can't even get out a sentence. We're going to call for a drug test, by the way, because his best performance was against Bernie in the final debate. It wasn't that he was Winston Churchill because he wasn't, but it was a normal, boring debate. You know, nothing amazing happened, and we're going to call for a drug test because there's no way. You can't do that. A top prosecutor working on Attorney General Williams Barr probe of the Russia investigation said she resigned because of concerns about political pressure to deliver the report before the election. Nora Danahay said she believed that John Durham was being pressured by Barr to produce results of their investigation before the work was complete. Durham is investigating the FBI's legal justification for a counterintelligence investigation that looked at ties between Trump's campaign in 2016 and Russian efforts to meddle in the election. Also, the judge appointed to review the Justice Department's effort to dismiss its prosecution of Michael Flynn said it looked like, quote, a corrupt and politically motivated favor done in response to pressure from Trump. John Gleason said the department should not be allowed to drop the case because, quote, the only coherent explanation for the government's exceedingly irregular motion is that the Department of Justice has yielded to a pressure campaign led by Trump for his political associate. Pro-Trump teenagers were being paid by a conservative nonprofit to cast doubt about the integrity of the election and play down the threat of COVID-19. The messages were posted at the direction of Turning Point Action, an affiliate of Turning Point USA, and meant to evade rules put in place following the presidential campaign in 2016 by social media companies to limit disinformation. In response, Twitter suspended at least 20 accounts involved in the activity for platform manipulation and spam. Day 1334, September 14th. As tensions continue to rise over what is sure to be a disputed election, Trump's media partners began suggesting insurrection and martial law. Reeling from reports that Trump lied about his knowledge of the coronavirus, advisor Roger Stone told the media that Trump should seize ballots in Nevada, jail Democrats, and declare martial law. Trump himself told Fox News that he was ready to, quote, put down any left-wing protests over the election in minutes, claiming, I have that right. The rhetoric has grown more heated as Trump's attacks on Joe Biden appear to have fallen flat. Also, a federal response to the pandemic continues to be lacking, as was thrown into relief this weekend, when the top communications official in charge of combating the coronavirus claimed falsely that career government scientists were engaging in sedition and that left-wing hit squads were preparing for armed insurrection after the election. Those statements were made by Trump appointee Michael Caputo, who also claimed the Centers for Disease Control were harboring a resistance unit determined to undermine Trump. Caputo claimed to be under threat of assassination, quote, and when Trump refuses to stand down at the inauguration, the shooting will begin. The drills that you've seen are nothing. If you carry guns, buy ammunition, ladies and gentlemen, because it's going to be hard to get. Caputo later deleted his Twitter account after he suggested tear gassing reporters. In a related story, Caputo reportedly repeatedly demanded that the CDC revise or delay weekly scientific reports on the pandemic. In one email to CDC Robert Redfield and other senior officials, Caputo accused CDC scientists of trying to, quote, hurt the president with the reports, which he referred to as hit pieces on the administration. Trump held an indoor campaign rally in Nevada in defiance of state regulations and his own administration's pandemic health guidelines. Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak accused Trump of reckless and selfish actions and called the rally, quote, an insult to every Nevadan who has followed the directives, made sacrifices, and put their neighbors before themselves. Trump, meanwhile, said he was not afraid of catching the virus at his rallies, quote, because I'm on stage and it's very far away. Trump also told supporters of the rally, quote, the only way we're going to lose this election if the election's rigged. Remember that. It's the only way we're going to lose this election, so we have to be very careful. A federal judge blocked the U.S. Post Office from sending a notice about the elections to Colorado residents because the mailer, quote, provides patently false information about that state's election policies. U.S. District Judge William Martinez blocked the deeply troubling false or misleading information in the notices, which incorrectly advised voters to request a ballot 15 days before Election Day and return the ballot at least seven days before. And Trump claimed he received the, quote, highly honored Bay of Pigs Award, which doesn't exist. In a tweet attacking Joe Biden, Trump claimed Biden, quote, spent 47 years in politics being terrible to Hispanics and is now relying on Castro lover Bernie Sanders to help him out. Remember, Miami Cubans gave me the highly honored Bay of Pigs Award for all I have done for our great Cuban population. The Bay of Pigs Award, which does not exist, apparently would commemorate the failed invasion of Cuba under John F. Kennedy that was meant to assassinate Fidel Castro. 
Day 1335, September 15th. The wildfires in the Pacific show no signs of abating. High winds and dry weather stoked more of them in the West, giving exhausted firemen no respite. Five million acres and scores of homes have been destroyed across the Pacific Northwest. From Washington all the way down into California, at least 26 are dead. Trump, who has remained largely silent on the fires, visited California and claimed, quote, it would start getting cooler and that'll put the fires out. Trump, with a laugh, then added, I don't think science knows, actually, about climate change. Trump has previously blamed California for failing to, quote, clean their floors of leaves and has threatened to, quote, make them pay for it because they don't listen to us. Joe Biden responded in harsh words, calling Trump a climate arsonist. Trump claimed that other countries had not dealt with the same level of forest fires despite major conflagrations in Australia and the Amazon rainforest in recent years. Quote, they don't have problems like this. They have very explosive trees, but they don't have problems like this. When you get into climate change, well, is India going to change its ways? Is China going to change its ways? And Russia, is Russia going to change its ways? The Justice Department has opened a criminal investigation into whether former National Security Advisor John Bolton unlawfully disclosed classified information in his memoir. The DOJ had sued and failed to stop the publication of that book, which is a highly unflattering account of his 17 months spent working for Trump. The DOJ has convened a grand jury in a significant escalation. Trump called Bolton a creepster who should be jailed. Bolton has in turn accused the White House of attempting to slow walk the book to stifle unflattering information. Jared Kushner claimed that the tapes of Trump privately admitting to downplaying the threat of the coronavirus in March are an example of him, quote, being very forthcoming with the American people. This is a lie. Kushner also went on to say, quote, Trump is not part of this let's lock down for perpetuity. People want to live their lives. They want to do what they want to do. The reality is that if you're not in one of the areas where you have comorbidities or above a certain age, then you have a different risk profile. This is also completely false. Trump claimed to have called for an extrajudicial killing. Michael Fornes Reynal was gunned down by U.S. Marshals in Seattle. He was suspected of shooting a member of the far-right Patriot Prayer Group during a protest in Portland, Oregon. Reynal claimed it was in self-defense. Trump claimed, quote, Now we send in the U.S. Marshals for the killer, the man that killed the young man in the street. Two and a half days went by and I put out, when are you going to get him? And the U.S. Marshals went in to get him. This guy was a violent criminal and the U.S. Marshals killed him. And I'll tell you something, that's the way it has to be. That has to be his retribution. Peter Navarro refused to testify before Congress about a canceled ventilator contract that would have wasted $504 million. Navarro was called to testify before the House Oversight Committee on Economic and Consumer Policy, but he refused to attend. An investigation found evidence of fraud, waste, and abuse in the acquisition, which was brokered by Navarro. Day 1336, September 16th. Blazes continue to intensify on the West Coast. Leaders in multiple states are now pleading for help with the capital cities of Salem, Oregon, and Sacramento, California under immediate threat. Hazardous air now stretches from Sacramento to Seattle in a toxic band blotting out the sun. The most polluted air on Earth is now over Seattle, Washington. A federal judge has ruled that Chad Wolf is unlawfully serving as acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. Judge Paula Zenas also temporarily barred the Trump administration from enforcing Wolf's new asylum restrictions on members of two immigration advocacy groups. Zenas ruled that Wolf was not in the order of succession and therefore is unlawfully installed. The World Trade Organization has ruled that tariffs imposed in 2018 by the U.S. on Chinese goods violated international rules. Since March 2018, the U.S. has imposed tariffs on $400 billion in Chinese exports. Trump responded to the ruling by saying, quote, we have to do something about the WTO because they've let China get away with murder. In a related story, the Justice Department charged a group of hackers associated with China's main intelligence service with infiltrating more than 100 companies around the world to steal intelligence, hijack their networks, and extort money. The DOJ said the attacks were a concerted effort by the Chinese government to unlawfully advance its economy and become the dominant global superpower through cyber crime. A whistleblower complaint claims an ICE detention center performed unnecessary hysterectomies on immigrant women. A complaint by a nurse who had previously worked at an ICE facility in Georgia said detained women told her they did not understand why they had to get a hysterectomy. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called on the DHS to immediately investigate the allegations of, quote, high rates of hysterectomies done to immigrant women. A Trump campaign ad rolled out on social media exhorting people to, quote, support our troops. The ad, however, used stock photos of Russian-made fighter jets and Russian models dressed as soldiers. 
Day 1337, September 17th. CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield testified bluntly that a vaccine won't be widely available until late spring or summer of 2021, and that America will not return to our regular life until then. Redfield added that, quote, a face mask is more guaranteed to protect me against COVID than when I take a COVID vaccine. Trump immediately claimed Redfield was incorrect and insisted the U.S. could start distributing a vaccine, quote, sometime in October. He also said Redfield had made a mistake asserting the mask is not as important as this vaccine. Bizarrely, Trump then criticized Biden for not implementing a national mask mandate. Biden, of course, is not the president and has no authority to do that. Trump then added, a lot of people don't want to wear masks. There's just a lot of people that think masks are not good. Just before police cleared Washington, D.C.'s Lafayette Square amid protests over the police killing of George Floyd, federal officials sought to obtain devices that could emit deafening sounds and make anyone within range feel like their skin is on fire. Defense officials apparently requisitioned crowd control technology that was deemed too unpredictable to use in war zones and authorized the transfer of about 7,000 rounds of ammunition. Police charged and tear-gassed peaceful protesters there without warning ahead of Trump's photo op at a church in which he held a Bible upside down. In a related story, Attorney General Barr has reportedly encouraged federal prosecutors to charge violent protesters with sedition. Sedition means that the demonstrators conspired to attack or overthrow the government. Trump endured a train wreck on-air performance at an ABC town hall that showed the trouble he has outside of the Fox News bubble. Under aggressive questioning from ordinary members of the public about health care, immigration, and the pandemic, Trump twisted in the spotlight, narrowing his eyes at a question about the race problem in America, and then trying to interrupt another voter's question about health insurance. That voter quickly shut Trump down, and he did not interrupt again. Trump also seemed confused and ill-prepared, at one point claiming herd mentality could defeat the coronavirus, when he seemed to be in herd immunity. He also referred to a crying woman who had lost her mother from cancer as dying from COVID. Directly pressed on tapes made of Trump by Bob Woodward, Trump claimed falsely that he did not minimize the threat of the virus. Quote, my action was very strong. I'm not looking to be dishonest. I don't want the people to panic. He went on to state flatly that he had no regrets about his management of the pandemic, despite a confirmed death toll close to 200,000 with no sign of containment. No, I think we did a great job. Challenged at the town hall on why he so rarely wears a face mask, Trump said, quote, I do wear them when I have to, but then went on to assert, quote, a lot of people think the masks are not good. Asked by his astonished moderator who Trump was referring to, Trump replied, waiters. And finally, Trump again claimed he had a health care plan. Quote, we're going to be doing a health care plan very strongly and protect people with pre-existing conditions. I have it already, and it's a much better plan for you. It's a much better plan. In fact, Trump's administration has attacked the ACA repeatedly, moved to strike coverage for pre-existing conditions, and has promised a health care plan for four years without delivering. Trump undercut congressional Republicans and urged Congress to support a new coronavirus economic relief bill with, quote, much higher numbers and stimulus payments for Americans. House Democrats, of course, passed a $3.5 trillion bill in May and have said they would settle for a $2.2 trillion package. Republicans, however, have tried to advance a $300 billion bill. Another woman has come forward to allege Trump sexually assaulted her. The former model said Trump sexually assaulted her at the U.S. Open tennis tournament in New York in 1997. Amy Doris alleges that Trump assaulted her outside the bathroom of his VIP box in an incident that left her feeling sick and violated. She accuses Trump of forcing his tongue down her throat, assaulting her, quote, all over her body and holding her in a grip she was unable to escape from. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy's operational changes delayed about 7% of first-class mail during the five weeks they were in effect. Before the changes, the post office delivered more than 90% of first-class mail on time. Delivery rates felt 20 points in northern Ohio, 20 points in Detroit, and 18 points in Pennsylvania, all key battleground states. 46% of American households report facing serious financial pain during the pandemic. 52% say they believe now Trump is mentally unfit to be president. 61% of Americans say they're going to vote early. Biden maintains at least an eight-point lead over Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Killer Drones released new material this week exclusively on Lumpen Radio. This is Go On Without Me. It was engineered by Corey Elbritton and Brian Boer in Studio C.
This is a WCYFM. I do want to talk about. So there is there's this one thing. Just to just to start off our our show tonight. Many of you I know are looking through the some of the newest images that we received from the Myers Halstead satellite. So we've we've done a lot of satellite work me and tech brothers uh in in the past few weeks past few months and we just got some of the highest quality pictures that we have ever taken uh into deep space with this satellite i i have been actually following some of these releases of these pictures they're quite beautiful yes quite beautiful uh unlike many other satellites that have been released we are taking these pictures in a in, in a very specific band. We're taking them in the Lyman emission spectra, which is very different. You might see a lot of pictures taken in uh, infrared or in plain plain light photons. But we find that the Lyman emission has this exceptional quality to give us very accurate results uh, that feel that feel real, that feel deeper, some say. Well, uh, there's there's something to be said about using a different spectrum when you're taking photographs like this. Like you said, there's 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 infrared. Sometimes there's microwave, um, radio. All of these sort of ways in which one can look to the heavens. But the the Lyman spectrum is so so unique because it 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 has this this depth, um, and and this the the grain is so much nicer, and there it really pops. It really, really pops. It, it, it does. It has it, it. Many other, many of these typical spectrums, they have they have a very coarse grain. But the the Lyman spectrum is known for having a very fine grain, silky smooth, silky smooth grains. And we've seen. I mean, some of my favorites, at least, we've taken so far. We've taken thousands of pictures. We're getting new pictures as the minutes go by. They're flashing on my screen right now as I'm monitoring this the stream. But some of my favorites so far have been the Gata B prime. Uh, the Alto Sax constellation, Freud's lip, and one particular one, which I I almost began to weep when I beheld, but it was it, it was this very very far away uh, astronomical body, the uh, uh, w- which has been termed only by very brief glimpses uh, by astronomers throughout the years. Uh, one particular. Um, Alf Houston, who who penned these as Houston's Pretty Little Nebulae. And we've finally got in-depth, clear, smooth, earthy, very ethereal, very just perfect pictures of the of Houston's Pretty Little Nebulae. Broadcast every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Thank you.